Welcome to Free Practice Fridays with Freya, where somehow you're getting a second go, James, even though I had threatened that Tommy would join me this week. I've decided to give you another shot. To be fair, I haven't seen an invitation to him, so I can only assume <laughs> that you just didn't ask. You don't ask, you don't get. Uh, and if anyone who knows Tommy T well will know that you need a good four or five month lead time to book him in for anything to give him enough time to respond to a message. So, and I know he's listening to this. So, hi, Tommy. Um, reply to my messages. Hi, Tommy. If you could respond to anyone, that would be great. Uh, no, you're very correct in saying that there was no invitation issued um, just because life got in the way. So you, you, you live another day, James. <laughs> mm, I love running on default <laughs> invitations. That's my favourite. <laughs> I know. It's just full of respect, right? So I thought we would change things up this week. And as much as this is Freya's Free Practice Friday, and to be clear, I will take over at any point that I choose, Um <laughs> You can ask me the questions. How does that sound? Ah, uh, yes, good. Also, thank you for the uh, <laughs> the good prep time that I had uh, this morning to think about interviewing you. But yes, okay. Well, welcome, welcome to uh, Freya's Friday F One Fridays with me, James. Uh, <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? It's interesting no. because I got in trouble last week for taking over the podcast, and now I'm being asked to take over the podcast. Who knows what's going on? Careful Certainly what you me. wish for, even if it is subconscious wishing. I know that you just need to come and get your sticky fingers on this podcast and uh, then you can hand it back over again. So we well, all, context we all is important. You- <laughs> uh, look, I, what I actually thought it would be good to do is uh, hello to many of your friends uh, who listen to this podcast now exclusively only the uh, <laughs> Friday one and not the main one because of reasons that we can all imagine it correct. Uh, so what I thought I would do is for the rest of our listeners, ask you some questions, give a bit of context to who who the F Freyer is. Uh, I couldn't be bothered <laughs> editing myself answer? out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, well, is, there, is anyone who would work at Apple would know we'll all learn together. Uh, look, what I want to do is actually go back to uh, your early life, sports early life though, because I know a bit about your story in terms of your sports background, but uh, obviously no one else really does listen to this podcast aside from your friends. So to, to really sum up <laughs> what you Thanks, are Mom about now, uh, let's go right listen. back to your beginning. So talk to me about your sports background. What did young, and I can only imagine highly competitive Freya, do for sport? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not a competitive person in the slightest. Well, that's the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Do better research when you interview people, James. Um, yeah, no, look, I am quite a competitive person. I Sport for me is a funny one because I was quite influenced by my siblings, I would say. Um, I think my parents still look at those of us um, who are quite sporty and kind of can't figure out where it comes from because – you know, we didn't grow up watching footy or, um, you know, Formula One or anything really. We weren't really particularly sporting family. Um, but my brother got into sport. He played rugby and he was a rower. Um, it was also quite a good, um, kind of athletics guy in his day. And then, um, one of my other sisters was a, was a rower as well. And she also did gymnastics and hurdles and all sorts of things. And I kind of came along and I think as many people who are the youngest of, um, you know, many siblings probably can relate to, you spend a lot of time being kind of dragged around to everybody else's sport. And so you then go, okay, well, I know a bit about rowing. I know a bit about hurdles and these other kind of things. So I'll just do that too. Um, so I kind of, fell into a few sports, I would say, um, rowing being one of them. Um, and I think by the time I kind of finished school, there were three big sports in my life. One is rowing. One was hurdling and athletics. So I was a jumper and, uh, I just liked sending myself over things at reasonable speed. I wouldn't say high speed given that we're talking about formula one, but <laughs> had a bit of pace behind me when I was younger. Um, and ballet was the, was the third one and I absolutely put that in the sporting category because it is probably the most athletic thing I ever did um, and they very much, those three things ran my life for about 10 years um, and it definitely brought out that competitive side of me sometimes probably for the benefit of, you know, competition, others perhaps not but, um, 
yeah, it's been an interesting one and it's something that I absolutely love. Like I will now, I'll sit and watch anything, like whether it's, I don't know, golf, rugby, cycling, soccer, NFL, AFL, whatever. I just love sport. I love everything about sport in terms of what it teaches you, the camaraderie of teams, um, the resilience, people's stories. Um, I find sport in Australia particularly interesting as well because Australia, I would say, is has this funny juxtaposition of being a really athletic sporting nation and yet we don't invest in our athletes um, and we have a very different attitude towards sport in comparison to a place, places like the US. So you have a lot of incredibly talented athletes actually leaving Australia in order to go and be full-time athletes, um, which I think is a real shame in a lot of ways because in their heart they'd love to be able to compete at home um, in a competitive way. So, yeah, that's a bit about my sporting background and, uh, yeah, I just I just am a bit obsessed. <laughs> I look forward to seeing a Visit Victoria sponsorship for you as well considering they seem to be the only <laughs> brand willing to save athletes in this country at the moment. Mm. So three completely different types of sport, it has to be said. Um, yes, you weren't being hurdled over anything from a Formula 1 point of view because George Russell wasn't next to you to bin you off uh, <laughs> and then jump you over a wall. So was there, any, was there a point where any of those three you found yourself wondering about a future in them? I still remember, I think it was actually at my 18th birthday party, my rowing coach who is like six foot five absolute unit standing next to my five foot nothing ballet teacher and my 80-year-old hurdles coach all just standing looking at each other going, oh, your wife Ray is always late to training. Oh, your wife, she showed up to ballet in a zoot suit the other day and it's like, no, you can't wear your spikes and the dance hall like it's it was a bit of a funny one because as much as they are all very different they actually complemented each other incredibly well so if you think about ballet I know a lot of people think about you know the grace and elegance and everything else that comes with that which is completely true from a style perspective but one of the most important things um with ballet is also power so really strong legs in order to jump really high I guess where you get strong legs from rowing. Um, and then from ballet, you have the, you know, the flexibility and flexibility and strength coming, coming together, which is also really important for hurdles, but then also for rowing as well. So as much as they were totally different, they actually, um, complemented each other incredibly well. Um, I think, uh, ballet was something that I would say I have the passion for, but wasn't good enough at, um, let's be clear. I've got my feet, uh, kind of crappy in the ballet world. So that was never going to be a thing. Um, but it's probably one of the ones that I would say, you know, if I was good enough, I had the passion for it, but I wasn't good enough and just wasn't built right. Um, hurdling, um, it's kind of like playing the trombone. Like you, you just, it's a sport that no one really thinks about a bit. And you, if you're really good, it's actually probably easier to, be successful in it because fewer people do it, but it's, there's also very few, um, opportunities to kind of cross between different, I don't know, like it's just a bit of a, a funny thing to specialize in. Um, for rowing, there was definitely a moment there where I thought maybe I could do something pretty cool here. Um, when it came to kind of, you know, your state and national level and kind of wanting to go there, but I'll be really honest. And by that stage, I was completely burnt out. Like I got to, year year 12 or so and I've been getting up since four o'clock my whole life either to go to my siblings trainings or to go to my own and I was really tired and so like again I kind of go I think I would have I was probably good enough and I wanted to but I was also just really tired and I'd already been pretty exposed to the politics of the sport then as well and I didn't love that side of it, which is the same in every sport. I don't think there's any sport that is immune to, um, the, the politics that goes on. Um, and I didn't love that. And I, it frustrated me as well. I think as someone who is so competitive, um, and you can only imagine what it's like at, you know, really elite levels, um, to feel like there is so much that's outside of your control in order for you to do well is just super frustrating because it's not as simple as, train hard, be the best and you get selected or, you know, train hard, um, get better and get on the team or whatever. Often that's actually just, you know, they're not the only variables. Um, even in a sport where it's just about 
your physicality. Um, you know, you don't have a car where that's 70% of your performance. It's, it's just how fast you can go. And, um, that's, I found that really frustrating part of side of sport. Um, and I kind of turned to coaching at that point, which I found super fulfilling. Like I still rode off and on through uni, um, and loved that and still rode when I was in the UK over in Cambridge city and, um, yeah, still really involved in it. Um, and did for did get involved for a long time through coaching and then racing for university. But um, I love coaching; absolutely love it. I find it so fulfilling um, watching the lessons be learned, the progress be made, challenges overcome, and everything else. Especially with pretty young rowers, like we start rowing in Tassie when we're about twelve, um, as opposed to Melbourne. In comparison, like they don't usually start until about fifteen. And so you've got these, you know, 12-year-olds out there in the absolute bloody freezing cold in Cornelian Bay and they're kind of up to their knees and really hoping they don't fall out. But there's so many lessons that you learn in that moment and then kind of recover together and all of that stuff. And um, I was actually moving house a couple of years ago and I found a ratchet spanner that um, one of my young teams had given to me and that had it engraved and with one of the little quotes that we used to kind of motivational quotes we used to have before we get just before we send them out on the water and um and it just made me realize how much I really did love it and you can have such a massive impact on people um as as a coach um and obviously now I'm kind of turning that into my professional career as well from psych perspective um but I actually got sent an article um from the school paper only from a couple of years ago um, and it was the head girl of, the, of that year talking about her rowing coach when she was 13 who happened to, to be me and, you know, this is someone whose name I can barely remember. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but was asked, you know, um, you know, what have been some of the big lessons that you've learned now you're finishing year 12, all of that stuff. And she started talking about a lot of what she learned through rowing and you go, oh, my goodness, like those moments have stuck with you as well and I think, there's something incredibly powerful in somebody who coaches um, coaches well and is really invested in the not just the success but the development, the learning um, and, and the individuals involved in sport. Well, certainly interesting to, to know your opinions on certain things that go on in the world of Formula One, of course, and uh, you bring a unique perspective and that coaching element certainly is part of that. Um, I won't talk about your professional career but certainly – from that side, I think it, it is really interesting. I, I guess from a from that point, those who can't do talk about it. So hence the four of us uh, <laughs> talk about Formula One all the time. As I said before, so everyone be. gets to talk about it because no one can do it. <laughs> no one can do it. Not even Danny Rick. Uh, but from oh. from that point, then as well for you, was sports journalism or broadcasting ever sort of in your field of interest? Because in the last 12 months, your podcasting career, I suppose, now we can we can call it that, has really accelerated beyond probably anything that you were expecting this time last year. I didn't think about it, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I was pretty set on a certain kind of track when I finished, finished school and going and, and becoming a psychologist. And, um, I, yeah, didn't really, I had, I was pretty blinkered, I would say, which, um, I think is a lesson even for, for me and, and other people as well, kind of going, you know, just really take it upon yourself to do research in terms of all the different options that are available to you. Um, mm. and think outside the square. Cause there's so many roles. It's not to say that obviously, I mean, obviously sports broadcasting and journalism and everything else existed. Of course it did. Um, but not in the way that it does now. Like that is the type of work that has evolved so massively from when we were at school that, you know, now you have all of these different avenues and access to people and um, different ways that you can bring stories to listeners and viewers and that type of thing, which in which for me I think is a lot more engaging. You know, it was, it was a lot about print media and that type of thing and that wasn't something that particularly, um, you know, um, kind of hooked me, I suppose, the idea of writing about it, but bloody hell, I love to talk about it. So, but you know, it wasn't a th- it wasn't really a thing then. Right. So, mm. um, I didn't, I didn't really know that it's a thing that would exist. And I don't think it did exist in the way that it does now. 
Yeah, podcasting. Well, I mean, there's plenty of podcasts out there, dear listener. Yeah. I know you know that. You're listening to this one. You found it somehow, <laughs> some some way. Uh, We're not a, the only one out there. Yeah. You no, know, no. There are. There is a lot of crap out there, though. There is a lot of rubbish, including us. But you know, at least we sound good most of the time, um, audio quality wise. The con- the you know, the actual quality of the conversation might be something completely different. Let's talk about Formula One now, though, because we are on a Formula One podcast. Allegedly, it's Friday. Um, what's your <laughs> earliest memory of Formula One? Well, I think. Anyone who listened to that, their very first podcast I did with you guys, which must have been the race preview Texas last year. So, you know, we've just had our one year anniversary. So, happy anniversary to uh, Lakeside Drive <laughs> from Freya. Um, but my earliest memory would have been on my gap year I think if you don't know what a gap year is find an Australian they'll tell you about it but um (laughs) it's it was we were in we were actually in Monaco and um a bunch of the boys who were traveling with said oh we want to go find the hairpin I was like what are you talking about and um they we went down there and we took the photos and that type of thing and I was like so talk to me about Formula One because motorsport was just not a thing in my world at all. We had Simmons Plains, um, which is a racetrack in Tasmania, which I only knew as a cross-country track because that's where I went to go and run. <laughs> and I was like, why are there Bridgestone signs everywhere? Like this is actually a track that we just come and convene at. <laughs> it's a good place to run from. Um, so that was my, the, my level of familiarity with motorsport. Um, so the first, my fir- actual first moment, earliest memory with Formula One was standing on the hairpin in Monaco, um, which is kind of funny, I think, you know, given that it's a place that a lot of people won't even get to go to. That was just a moment for me. But then um, it kind of came to life a bit more the following year in Melbourne when I moved there um, and I heard the cars and I'd been watching it a little bit the previous year, but I just hadn't quite registered what it would be like in person. Um, and we were standing at uni um, in Melbourne and I could hear it. I'm like, what is that sound? So I was up in Parkville. Like, what is that? What is that noise? And everyone's like, it's it's Formula One's on this weekend. And I was like, okay, again, like talk to me some more about what it's like down the track and that type of thing. So the first memory was actually in Monaco. Second one was, was really being hit with the noise um, firsthand. So, of course, then we trotted down there and, and checked it all out. Really, um, that time stamps when you went to university because anything past 2014 <laughs> – you can't hear the cars when you stand right next to them anymore. Uh, but, yeah, I can imagine it was it was incredible uh, to sort of understand that. And certainly for a lot of Melburnians at the time, there's, there's a lot of people now who watch Formula 1 as a result of that, not just drive to survive. Um, mm. Did you find yourself as interested in motorsports as other people were? So when your mates talk about, you know, the, the chicane at Monaco and they really getting involved with it, was it when you started watching it, were you interested because of, you know, the competitive nature of the event, like rowing or watching rugby or anything else? Or was it more about the storylines that you started to discover that sort of brought your interest up? No, very much the sport. And I think that's the same with me with all sports. It's always been about the sport. It's about the competition. Um, and that's absolutely what drew me into it, partially because, um, you know, what is so striking about Formula One is just how few people actually um, are able to achieve that as their career because, mm. you know, you have so few drivers. So that was really attractive to me as a spectator being like, oh, my God, these are absolutely the best of the best. You know, you've got 100 million basketball players, you've got 20 Formula One um, drivers. And that was something that really kind of hooked me because you just go, there has to be something really special about these people um, and how they think, their performance, their work with a team. And there was something there's something very complex about it as a sport, which I also found just immediately interesting. Um, I think there's other sports which are less exciting from that perspective and that there's so many variables involved. And I love that about it too. But no, very much about about the sport and and about about the drivers in so far as I find it fascinating that that's what they do. You know, you go, these are people who could probably go and be fighter jet pilots or something like that. You go, you're putting your, you're you're the competitive sporting version of that when you think about what you're risking um, and what you're doing. So I do find, I found not so much about a story perspective, but the personalities involved um, just because of the nature of the sport. I found that very intriguing as well. Yeah. It's uh, the fighter jet 
pilot comparison happens often until you mm. know fighter jet pilots and then you're like, no, <laughs> nowhere close. Uh, <laughs> ask me how I, I know. I've very few of those in my life, so I haven't had to be able to make the direct comparison. So when did you start consuming a lot of Formula One content then? Because you heard the cars, you started going down, but it sort of, for a lot of people, it takes quite a while to start wanting to follow the season, especially in Australia because the time zone sucks mm. so much. Yep. And often a lot of the content is behind the paywall of Fox Sports or KO. Oh, absolutely. And I was a poor uni student, so there's no way I had any of that. Um, So on that note, probably not until I kind of finished uni, partially because that just consumed my life. Um, But what I did find, actually, this is quite funny, because um, you'd be up studying at, you know, stupid o'clock, that's when there was a lot of, often a lot of activity happening because obviously that's the time zone that it's happening in. So when I'm procrastinating (laughs) doing what I'm meant to be doing, um, I would find a lot of activity kind of happening there when it comes to, you know, reports coming out about whoever was racing in, you know, Spa or whatever. So I kind of started kind of, um, yeah, absorbing it. But again, the content just wasn't that accessible, honestly, um, especially if you didn't have subscriptions and everything else. Um, and you only have one track a year that you could, you can go to. So my, my first kind of, real engagement with the race was working in catering, unfortunately. have to say it's not a great vantage point, especially when you are um, a runner out the back. So I didn't really want to be like front facing hospitality. I was like, I just want to put my sneakers on. I don't don't want to have to like put clothes on, like pretty clothes on and be all hospitality. I was like, I just want to put my sneakers on and like carry boxes around and stuff and earn some cash. And so that was my first actual experience at a Formula One racetrack was just working catering. Don't recommend it. Um, (laughs) Partially because you do go deaf, you did go deaf then. So that must've been like, um, like 2012, 2013. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, great. My ears are ringing and I didn't say a thing. Um, but <laughs> you did still get a bit of a understanding as to what the, what the vibe was like. But I would say probably after I'd fin- finished uni, things started to become a little bit more accessible. People were doing different types of content, which allowed you to engage with it a bit more. Um, and it started, although not then again for another couple of years, but just becoming a little bit more accessible. People were opening up a little bit more, whereas it really felt like everything was kind of super hush hush, very exclusive. Um, and after that, um, it kind of started becoming a little bit more, um, you know, you're invited in a bit more, I suppose. So then how do you feel about Drive to Survive changing that whole vibe? So I think it's attracted a very different type of um, fan. I think there are some people who like sport and will watch that and go, okay, this is really cool and they will be completely hooked on it. There'll be some people like that for sure and maybe it's just not something they grew up with, they didn't really know what it was about, they just saw it as loud cars and that wasn't the thing that they were into Um, and that might have kind of shown them more and that's now got them involved in the sport and they'll watch it forever and that's awesome. I've noticed though as well there's a lot of kind of five-minute fans um, who got super obsessed with it and already, and you know, for once they found out that I started, that I was watching it, they would send me links, send me videos, send me all of his content. I'm like, that's great. You know, you're engaging with all that stuff and it's stopped now completely. So the longevity of those fans, just because of what the motivation is, I think, you kind of think about why you engage with a sport, why you watch it, why you follow the storylines um, and do your research and all of that type of thing. It, it doesn't, that will come to the surface very, very quickly if you're only in it for the drama, I think. You know, if there's, no, if there's nothing else beyond that, if it's not a love for, for sport, for technology, for engineering, um, whatever it might be, competition, um, that will come up pretty quickly. So I think it has been really good for the sport for even existing fans as well in terms of, we, you know, we just get to see more, we get to learn more, we get to hear different opinions and you just get a lot more, you know, um, get a lot more information from what was a previously kind of closed door. Um, but I also think the the flip side of that is that I don't know if the fans that, new fans that Netflix has created are going to be kind of long-term fans of the sport and a side effect of that may be that the kind of more established fans who are there because they love it 
um, and have loved it for a long time actually have almost a bit of a door closed on them because now, you know, everything's more expensive. Um, it's harder to get access, all of that, that type of thing. So I think there's been a bit of a perhaps unintended kind of collateral <laughs> when it comes to the experience that people who love the sport for the sport um, are perhaps experiencing because it's going to be even harder for them to get to races now um, and and that type of thing. Um, so I think pros and cons. Looking from a podcasting point of view, it's how's it changed how you watch Formula One? I think I'm probably more aware of the kind of storylines than I would have been otherwise. Um, it's not something that I'm particularly interested in I'll say I mean it's interesting in maybe that's a maybe it's an overstatement um of course there's it's intriguing right when you hear about certain relationship changes or this person said that or whatever else but um so maybe I'm more aware of that than I used to be so maybe my speculation has changed um I think I probably used to be a little bit more purist when it came to um decisions that were made in the sport or maybe another word for that is naive (laughs) Um, so I don't, I don't know. Um, but I would say I am probably more aware of a lot of the storylines and the people involved and that type of thing, um, which does perhaps change how I kind of assess different situations or decisions or outcomes. Um, but I think it's really important that for, I mean, for me anyway, and I was, everyone's different, but for me, um, that can't be it. You know, because that that won't last. You know, if you if you're if you're only watching a sport because of one person or because of one, you know, bit of drama that's come up, everything else that just doesn't last. You know, that's got nothing really to do with what is so phenomenal about this sport, which is you know the the technology, the teamwork. You know, every team has a thousand people behind them, um, smaller or you know bigger or smaller, just based on. Um, on on teams but like it's it's a fascinating sport far more beyond any type of kind of off-track drama so james i was in the office the other day and it turns out that the favorite tv show of all of my irish american british and filipino colleagues is the australian love at first sight and they're all obsessed with it why (laughs) <laughs> oh, yep. And all of the like other Australian reality TV shows. And the way the reason oh, why they are geez. able to access this absolute high quality gold television is because they are using a VPN and able to access content that is outside of the Caribbean because let's be clear, we get very little uh locally made um, movies and reality TV as might not surprise you. I don't know. But if you're missing out on your favourite show because you can't get it in your region, then you should download NordVPN. So perhaps you're bored with Married at First Sight US and you want to watch the Australian ones and get your Australian lingo up to speed with words like bogan. I cannot get behind this. I, look, I can get behind NordVPN. Do that, absolutely. But if you're using it to get content like this, I have many, many questions as to what you're uh, doing with many, your life. Many, many questions. But one of the many, many questions that comes my way is what is a bogan? And it's actually very hard to explain. Yes, yeah, It's point. just something that um, you have to come to Australia to see. But if you can't go all the way to Australia... Just watch Married at First Sight on your, using your Nord VPN, and at the click of a button, you can do just that. You don't actually need to go to Australia, which is, as everybody knows, on the other side of the world to everywhere, even those places that are <laughs> next door to it. Um, and and you can access it using your Nord VPN. So using our discount at nordvpn.com you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan and of course you get that one free month as well and if you're not a big fan of everybody knowing that married at first sight australia is your favorite tv show although no one seems to have a problem with that in in our office then you you might want to keep that private and that's a, that's important too so nordvpn keeps all of your information encrypted and you don't have to worry about your ip location getting out so it's risk-free you've got your 30-day money-back guarantee so no risk that if you want to watch married at first sight and then it turns out 
that's not your thing, Desperate Housewives, just like Campy, that's your favourite TV <laughs> show and you want that locally, then it's a money-back guarantee. So give it a try and if you like it, that's great. And if you don't, well, then they'll give you a refund because they're bloody legends like that. So give it a go and have a look via our link in the bio. What's been uh, your experience or what's it been like there to, to have feedback from podcasting when people either feed it back directly to you in person or online or you meet people that you've never met before? Well, most of the feedback that I've got has been about campy, so it hasn't been that useful <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but everything I do in every other part of my life always has had a big part of feedback has always been a big part of it. So that's not something I find particularly, um, I don't know, it doesn't weigh on me. Um, you know, if you go back to sport, for example, you do a set, you stop and someone goes, right, next time you need to do this better. You nailed that though. Okay. So it's something you're doing well. It's something you need to keep working on. And that will be a whole session. Um, it's the same with, it was the same with ballet. It was the same with hurdling. And, um, I think when you've had that as part of everything you do, hearing it then of someone else saying, oh, you could have helped to steer the conversation better, or, um, you could have asked this question or you accidentally cut off it sounded like you accidentally kind of cut off the the interviewee or your subject and that type of thing you're, okay yep noted you know how can I not do that next time or um I think the more important thing when it comes to this type of thing is acknowledging the things that you you, you are doing well um because a lot of the things that you won't see as strengths and this goes for everybody the things that you won't see as strengths because it's just your natural style or how you go about things other people will say that's actually really amazing that you're able to hold conversation for hours when all you can hear is Campy's breathing, like great work. <laughs> um, so the things that you won't necessarily see as your own strengths, other people will see as, um, you know, actual real achievements. So it's important to be aware of, of those two. What's been your favourite podcasting moment this year? Probably on the McLaren Applied podcast. Uh, where we hosted the panel um, discussion, which was with four women working in um, at McLaren Applied. And there was a moment with one of the women on that panel um, who had come in with quite a bit of um, kind of prepped material and stuff, which is, you know, very normal. You're going into an interview. You want to make sure you're, you're ready and all of that type of thing but it was feeling a little bit scripted and I kind of just went off script for a second and just asked a few questions that were based on a story that she was telling and all of a sudden she just came to life and um, that to me was a real learning um, as a host but then also what makes really good content because you we were able to see in that moment um, the shift in energy, that change in energy in the person who you're interviewing or speaking to um, and and also how people responded to that because we almost had, because it was a panel, we had a, you almost have a bit of an immediate feedback loop, right, because you've got people around you who are either laughing or engaging or they're falling asleep or whatever. And when she started t- telling this story, which she, she wasn't planning to, um, but it was very off the cuff and it was clearly something that meant a lot to her, all of a sudden the response changed. Um, so that um, was a an interesting, a really interesting moment and and something that, um, yeah, you kind of take a lot away from, even though it wasn't a, you know, it's not a high-profile person or anything like that, but it was an important moment. Just before we wrap this segment up, before I hand control back to you, where else do you get your F1 content from? Yeah, I am a big fan of um, racer.com um, just because I find that they – Anything that they, that is still speculation, they're very open about the fact that it is still speculation. Um, they don't print things that as you know as though they're gospel when they're not, which we see um, on on other sites. So um, uh, is it Racing News three six five? I sometimes I have a scan at that, and I was like, that 
that hasn't been confirmed yet, but you're talking about it as though it has. And there's a couple of other sites I find just to be a bit overly confident in in their reporting. So I do like um, racer.com. I'll often just you know go to the actual F1 website, who would have thought. Um, mm. But then a lot of the associate um, kind of uh, businesses as well or organisations, so whether that's Girls on Track UK um, or Pirelli or whoever, like other um, associated either suppliers or organisations, there's actually often a lot of content or news um, or interviews or whatever that, that they're hosting as well. So they're probably my kind of, you know, racer and, and F1 are my two main sources. And then after that, it's it's other interviews and people doing this type of thing. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end. Thank you so much for being on your own podcast. Uh, and now <laughs> back to you. Well, good work with the prep on that one. As it does just talking about hosting a podcast and be like, oh yeah, you want to go in prepared. Um, just having a bit of a chuckle about that uh, for this one. But I don't hey, need preparation. Who needs prep? I know that that's not your your style. So actually I think that you should be more at home having had no prep time at all. That's true. Um, but other things we just wanted to chat about this week. So talking about where you get your content from, um, there was an interview released um, with Go Teefy um, with Tom Clarkson and I found this quite interesting um, just in the way that he talks about his career and his competitors and that type of thing. Um, I, ha- I don't. I have to say I don't get a lot of like Latifi content um, because, I mean, there's not, not a lot of it and it's not necessarily he's not someone who I am um, a huge you know, supporter of necessarily um, so I tend not to, to see that much of it. But this is actually a really good interview and something which I really liked about it was that he just communicates in such a respectful way. And I know we talk about that with him in terms of going, oh, you know, he's the nicest guy on the grid and everything else. But there's an element I'd say that he actually gets a bit frustrated by with that um, in there going, well, I'm actually just as competitive as everybody else here. Um, but he does communicate in such a respectful way. He's so... Um, he recognises the kind of the privileged position that he's been in and that for the last three years he has lived what would be a dream for most people. You know, people who are karting going, I want to be a Formula One driver. He's like, I've been, I've been living the dream for, for three years and that's actually a massive privilege and he acknowledges that, which I think is um, is great. There's no sense of entitlement there, um, which will be so easy to have for somebody who's in his position. Um but he did say, you know, there's been a bit of a shift in feelings kind of towards everything, not just the the sport or fans or whatever, but just a big shift in feelings towards everything just based on the last year. Um, and he said, you know, it's very hard to, you know, every race weekend go into a weekend knowing that I could knock it out of the park. I could give my best performance I ever have. And we probably still won't get a result that is befitting of the effort that goes into it with the team and the people back at the factory, Um, which again, I think it's, he said, you know, that just, that just then makes motivation really, really difficult. You know, you've got to dig deep when you know that you're never competing for a podium, Um, which I thought was just interesting for, to hear him say. Yeah. And I think this year, especially probably the last two years, but this year, especially F1 Twitter has just been the most toxic place mm. full of idiots who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about, but they love ganging up on people. They love really, really having a go. Uh, and Latifi is often in in their sights, which is just, I mean, it is what it is. I guess you're part of a driver and, and you know, you're going to get criticism, but it feels different this year. And I think also the way that people talk about Formula One, one of the reasons why some people have dropped off, as you said uh, in that brilliant interview segment that was just done earlier, uh, <laughs> that people have the, the sort of maybe five-minute fans have dropped out, and, but the the toxic element of that has stayed, um, those who feel like they know enough to be able to, to share stuff around. And so I think for for this kind of phase of where we're at with not only just Drive to Survive fans but everyone, it's very easy to get on board someone and completely destroy them for no reason. Now, Campy's been doing that since 2019 to Pierre Gasly. Different story <laughs> uh, because I think if Pierre Gasly met Campy, in fact, I would love to arrange that. If I end up oh, working somehow in the paddock of Formula 1, I need yeah. to uh, get a little video directly to Campy 
from Pierre Gasly uh, just absolutely putting himself in the bin. But uh, anyway, it, it's just interesting because I think Gotifi is an incredibly lovely dude. Uh, it, a lot of these drivers, you know, aren't all that uh, talkable and not that chatty when it comes to feeling how they feel. Uh, I want to open up about it, but I feel like he does. And it's unfortunate because the car's not being developed in the direction that he wants it to be developed in. Because why would you? Because he's leaving exactly the same as DR with McLaren. There's no point. Um, and sometimes you just have to accept that. And it must be so hard to do, though. Oh, and there's, so there's a few things you mentioned, things you mentioned there, which I think are good to talk about. One of which is the aftermath of last year, at the end of last year. And he actually answered that question really well um, in terms of saying what was the impact of that on you, where he just said, look, it just shows the ugly side of social media. And this isn't actually about me or about sport. Yeah. It's about social media. It's the same for anybody else who's in the limelight. Um and he said, you know, it was good that the season was done. I didn't have to show up in the paddock next week and ask questions about it and that type of thing. But he goes, this isn't about me. It's not about even about Formula One. It's about social media. And anybody who has any type of attention is um, suddenly, you know, a free-for-all when it comes to horrific behaviour. And if you think about the situation that has he has been in, both in that situation and then his general kind of performance this year and the last couple of years, he – I don't want to say right, but you know, you have you have so many choices in how you behave or respond to situations, and the only thing you control is your own behaviour. At no point has he, you know, bad mouthed other people, blamed his team, um, boycotted interviews or anything like that. All he's done is go in and say, "I'm trying to figure it out. I'm doing my best. It's a really frustrating weekend. Everything else." So he's just been completely respectful to everybody else who's involved. Because, like I said, you know, a, there's a whole other thousand people behind him as well. Who, and he's just the one That's who right. has to kind of front up the media up to the media. Um, But he said, you know, people do see me as the nice guy, but I'm just as competitive as the rest of them and it's really hard to come to terms with the fact that you can't win, you can barely compete. So where are you meant to draw your motivation from? You have to dig pretty deep for that. Um, And he's very open about, you know, Russell and Albon in terms of saying, look, they're they're better and that is what it is. You know, he said, you know, there's elements of that which are helping them insofar as he goes, Alex is a much more – he's much more comfortable with an unstable car. He said, you know, I really like to brake late. I kind of create my own front end in doing that and it's at the expense of exit speed, but I try and find a balance with that. But the way we've developed this car, the second you have that combination of braking and steering, I'd lock up. And mm. I, But then the next time I, I do it, it doesn't happen. And he goes, the un, the instability in the car and then the un, unpredictable nature of it, he goes, I just I'm really have not been able to come to terms with that, come to grips with it. And he goes, and, you know, he goes, to be fair, Albon has. And maybe his ability to do that has exposed my weakness, which is the fact that this is how I like the car and, you know, he's been more adaptable with that and he's he said he felt didn't feel like the gap was as big with with Russell and their performance um, in comparison to, to Albon, but he kind of said, but this year the car took an extra step away from my driving style. Um, and so to your point, said, you know, it's been really hard just to watch it go further and further in the opposite direction because how am I meant to work with that in a lot of ways? And he, he'll say, you know, it's not it's not all about the car, but it is also all about the car in a lot of ways too. Um, so he said, you know, you've you've just got to keep working at it, and and a lot of it seems to come from the respect of just getting to race in Formula One, and the fact that. Like I said, he's he's living everybody else's dream um, in a lot of ways, and he said, you know, didn't tried not to let last year and the kind of behaviour that he was subject to knock his confidence for this year, and he said that it didn't. Um, but what did happen was, you know, qualifying in Australia, Saudi. I'm oh, sorry, not Saudi. Um, Bahrain earlier in the year. He said, you know, it's just it's hard to get momentum when things like that happen so early in the season. Um, that that he's like that knocked my confidence though, like my own performance did. Um, so he's just incredibly um, self aware, um, which was very impressive to hear. Yeah, he. Uh, I can't wait to listen to that interview. Um, I, I haven't yet listened to that one with Tom, but I can only imagine it, it's going to be a good one. Let's hope that he can find himself in a competitive Indy car next year or NASCAR. Yeah. Um, although I imagine NASCAR now, everyone is just going to drive against the wall for the entire time because yeah. that that shit was the best motorsport I've ever seen. Anything else? Hero there's nothing. There's business. nothing better. 
There's nothing better in Formula Abs- One. Don't even pretend like you're going to say, oh, Senna and Prost, not in the bin. Nothing compared to that move that was done. If you haven't seen it yet, go to NASCAR, uh, the, the social media platforms, and you will see heaps of it. Heaps and heaps and heaps of it. It was bloody Or go to anybody else's platform and you'll see it. But I don't so think there's true. anyone who's not obsessed with it. It's everywhere and it's phenomenal. It's absolute hero business. It's so, oh, just, oh, my goodness. You can't imagine just the type of steel you would have to have inside you to pull that type of move. Like it must have been terrifying, um, not to mention just like also quite innovative, innovative and like un- probably a bit unnecessary but at the same time incredible. <laughs> well, you know what happened? He read and then, uh, well, he's seen heaps of social media recently and he's gone, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fuck around and I'm going to find out. <laughs> It's so good. The best part, actually, I think the best part of it is listening to the live reactions of people who are um, like in the stands there. They're like just going absolutely mental, like, whoa, like, you see this yeah, guy? So like, this good. is amazing. They're like, just can't believe what they're witnessing. It's beautiful. One last thing I was going to say on um, on Latifi, because you mentioned Daniel Ricciardo is that he has a lot of empathy for everything he's hearing there. He goes, look, I can't put myself in Dean Daniels, Ricciardo's shoes um, to to tell you how he's feeling. But he goes, I understand completely. When he says he comes in he looks at the data and then this is how the car behaves and then it's different next time and then it's not how you like to drive and all of his stuff, he's like, I just get it completely because I have have a very strong sense as to what he's – what he's going through um, and, you know, just really feel feel for him because I feel like I'm going through the same thing, um, which I thought was interesting because it's also because, again, because social media is so crap, you have these people going, oh, no, Ricardo's washed. Um, and I was like, well, actually, you've got two drivers there who are both saying that they cannot come to grips with their car and they can't figure out what it is a lot of the time and – you know, there's only so much you can do about it. So it's not it's not something that is u- unique to him um, either. So, again, maybe those two should go have a beer one day and <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, I think, you know, plenty of people can say someone's washed without ever driving a Formula 1 car. I think one of the mm. things that is incredibly important is to listen to other people who have done it and there is no one in the paddock except for one Canadian dickhead who drove a Formula 1 car over two decades ago, three decades ago, um, saying anything that, is any anywhere kind of remotely around Danny is washed or any of it. So I think when um, the other the current drivers on the grid are saying it's a shame for Daniel, like we really hope he stays. Like everyone has said that. Um, yeah. Not only because he is obviously a really big big part of the sport from a Netflix point of view and, and character point of view, but also because they've all probably, except really for Lando. Uh, and maybe Joe have been able to bounce around different teams and try to understand and get on top of a car that isn't quite right and makes you mm. know it makes it very hard to drive. Carlos Sainz is a is a similar example to Daniel. I mean, he managed to get on top of that McLaren better than probably than Daniel did. But it would have been interesting to see if Daniel in that same era McLaren would have done similarly before. Carlos then departed or if Carlos would have struggled the following year. I mean, you know, you can't, it's all speculation, isn't it? But it's just interesting, I think, at that point. Oh, totally. No, I completely agree. Like you said, it'd be interesting. Like, and, that, and another good question of that, which I would completely understand, is Tomlin's kind of says, you know, would you just love to get into a Red Bull and just see what you can do in it? He's like, I want to get into any car that I can be in the mid-pack or higher in, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, doesn't even have to be a Red Bull. I just want to be like be able to like properly compete in the mid-pack every weekend. But um, I feel like that about Daniel Ricciardo and a few other drivers as well, to be honest, where I really want to know what their actual potential is because so much of it is in in the car. And we saw that in, we see that in so many examples when we kind of, especially when you get those kind of straight line speed overtakes, you just go, there's just no way that this, you know, it's got nothing to do with that, that person. The car is just so much faster um, mm. in certain circumstances in particular. But I would love to see not, not just Daniel Ricciardo, other epic drivers like Pierre Gasly um, in the current Red Bull car or, you know, whichever even a Ferrari. And so what what can you actually do with this? Um, because I think there's a lot of drivers who, you know, will never see their full potential because they don't have the machinery underneath them. Um, yep. 
part of the sport is what it is. Um, other news this week was the F2 and F3 calendars have been released. Um, so some logic prevails with the FIA, which is that they will keep raking, racing alongside um, Formula One which is great. That was a really good change that they had made. It just made complete sense to do that. Um, And there'll be a couple of changes. So Australia is getting added. So F2 and F3 have not raced in Australia before. So they will get to do that as a street track, which is awesome um, to have them come over and and race in Melbourne. Um, There'll be 14 rounds for for F2 um, and F3 will go from 9 to 10 because they will also go to Monaco, which they haven't done before. So um, really interesting to see how those drivers kind of take on that challenge because it's very different to every other track, um, both in terms of you know, qualifying and then, and then the race. So I'm sure that will be something that they're excited to see. Cars are the right size for that track, F3 mm-hmm. cars, so the racing will actually be pretty good. In fact, that'll be the, the one to watch on a Monaco Grand Prix weekend is to get out there for the junior categories, not necessarily for the main event. Yeah. Oh, it would be great. Like I said, they're much more appropriate for the width of the track in comparison to our current generation of F1 cars. So, um, but it's just... I think as a driver, um, they will just be, you know, they'd be so excited to finally get to race that track properly because it's something that you do, um, you hear from all of them kind of say, it's the one that you want to race at, it's the one that you want to win. So they'll be glad to be starting to get that experience um, a bit earlier on, I'm sure. But that's it for this week. Don't forget that you can support the show by either subscribing to our YouTube channel, grabbing some merchandise or jumping onto our Patreon link via the description below. Or of course, you can get a Nord VPN subscription as well. James, you're definitely not coming next time. But thanks for asking me some really cool questions. You're welcome. And do what you want, listener. Don't have don't subscribe. <laughs> don't do it. I don't believe but do it. it. Don't no, do it. Not interested. But do it. I don't want to do it. No. I don't, don't want to do I don't want to do but content do next year. It's fine. Do it, but don't do it. Pull the plug out. And if you want to do it, don't do it. But do it. All right. Good God. What was that? All right. See us out. I don't know. I don't know. This is what happens when you give me free reign. I just talk absolute garbage.